Mr. Darcy, it is an absolute pleasure and honor to sit down with you. I'm incredibly grateful that you were willing to take the time, and I'm hoping we can do just a brief introduction uh, from your perspective. For sure. What do you want to? What do you want to know? Uh, let's start with uh, some of the work you've been involved in. Well, in general, uh, the work I'm involved in is about pushing the envelope in uh, brain health and and unleashing the potential of our brains, and I take a not only a scientific but a technological approach to that uh, to sort of uh, a lot of times people I think we're all in and we all have a sense that there's more potential in our brains and we try to use science and technology to really make that happen. That's awesome and I think that the, a great place to start is with the Green family because seeing that story it was incredibly inspirational to hear your TED talks and to see the work that Trevor Green went to and just kind of his whole life story but could you tell us how that all came about because it sounds like you were watching a documentary and that's how it all kind of got started for you. Yeah you know a, a lot of things I think in my life and my career I've, I've had this incredible uh, fortune to just cross the paths with amazing people and, and certainly um, the, you know, the collaboration and the partnership and the friendship with uh, Trevor and Debbie uh, Green um, and the family, uh, which is now almost, uh, I think it's over 10 years. Uh, it's just been, uh, it's been one of the most amazing and impactful and valuable things I've had and not just my professional career as a neuroscientist, but also uh, really, I think, um, you know, I, I really want, like all of us, you want to make a difference in this world, and, and this definitely is on that list. Absolutely. So you were watching the documentary, and then you chose to reach out because you thought you could do something, and I think that that is so inspirational because so many of us watch documentaries, and maybe some of us don't watch documentaries, but for you to see that you could play a role is, I think, inspiring in and of itself. So could you tell us how it came about that you met uh, the Green family? Sure, yeah. So for those um, who aren't aware, um, Captain Green served in Afghanistan for Canada, um, and he served in, um, it was, the year was in 2006, uh, and there, um, they were at the tip of the spear, his particular uh, platoon and, and group, and his job was as basically a military liaison officer, so his job was to basically, they would go to villages in Afghanistan on, you know, that were sort of around the Kandahar area, and they would, um, meet and sit with the village elders and as a sign of respect they would take their helmets off and lay their firearms down and then um, it was actually Trevor's uh, job specifically to initiate a conversation around how we as Canadians could help and more often than not his one of his major objectives uh, was really around empowering women in that country and so he had to prepare for a little bit of a a, a challenging conversation around saying, you know, we'd love to provide resources, but we'd also in return, we, it's important to do things like educate your women. And um, of course, that that was always met with either, you know, laughter or resistance. And so it's a tricky sort of conversation. And one day they're sitting down on March 4th, 2006. And uh, it was, they weren't even going to do this meeting, but they decided to do one more in a village called Shinkei. And um, as they started the conversation, a young 16-year-old uh, insurgent who was under the sway of the Taliban uh, was uh, sort of had come up quietly behind Trevor and from his robe underneath pulled a, an axe and with uh, two hands and all his strength uh, buried the axe into the top of Captain Green's head, um, which uh, the neurosurgeon at the time said it was the largest uh, uh, injury that he'd seen. Certainly, it's uh, 
uh, the largest I've seen in my career. Um, from there, it could have been one of the darkest moments. And it actually, um, instead of that, this story has become probably one of the brightest stories about hope and unleashing brain potential that uh, I would say safely the planet has ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. That is incredible. And I think that you saw that he was working to try and get, start walking again. And that I think showed in the documentary you saw. Mm -hmm. And then it was from there that you said, they're focused on the feet, they're focused on the legs, but they should be focused on the brain. How did you know that? Um, when you were watching that, was that just plain as day? Or um, how did they not know that? Like, is that just uh, too much specialization that they didn't consider the brain? Uh, well, I think I had a unique perspective as a neuroscientist, right. for sure. Um, and I ended up, um, I remember it, the day really crystal clear because I got drawn into this amazing documentary called The Peace Warrior, um, which uh, was actually a love story about, uh, as, the, as the documentary, Sue Rideout, who did the documentary, will tell you, um, it was a love story about how Debbie and Trevor fought through this incredible journey. And, and um, it was just so compelling. And... There's a moment where you can see they're starting to get hope. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're, um, you know, some amazing moments. Um, Trevor forgave his attacker in spite of, you know, PTSD that I can't even conceive, right? And still to this day, he he's, he works through that. Um, and his goal becomes to to walk again, right? And I, there's this just incredibly powerful moment in that documentary where they're meeting with a clinical specialist who is specialized primarily in orthopedics around his feet, which um, his feet were not, uh, they were basically pointed because of the injury. And, um, and he was wondering, how can I get my feet flat so I can just walk and I want to walk again. And the, um, the information he was given was basically to manage false hope to say, you won't walk again. And that's where I yelled at the TV and I, I you know, was, you know, not uh, my, you know, uh, my greatest moment by any stretch. I was like, it's not his feet, it's his brain. And so I just, I de I've always decided, you know, if there's something in the world you think needs to be changed, change it. Yeah. So I picked up my laptop and I sent a note to Sue Rideout. And I just said, it was actually absolutely the case. It was a very short email. I said, I think I can help. Yeah. And, um, and from there, that went to Debbie, and, and we uh, started a, a research collaboration that uh, started in 2009 and continues to this day. Wow. I think that that is so inspirational because a lot of people wish they could help. They have this mindset of like, oh, if I was in this circumstance, I would help. But I don't know if we always commit to that. I think a lot of people think, yeah, like I would be the person to, to save someone from a burning building, but they, they don't actually pull the trigger in that moment to take that action. But it's clear that you saw that you could play a role and chose to reach out and see what you could do. What was that initial meeting like um, to, to offer this type of hope? And I'm also interested to know your thoughts on on false hope. Do you think that it's right that we approach things in that way to discourage people from getting too much hope? Or do you think that perhaps we should have more confidence in the patient and try and encourage the patient to at least reach their full potential? Well, yeah, so that's, um, that's a great question. I think, um, first of all, the, uh, the initial conversation was amazing. I remember speaking to Debbie. Um, of course, at this point, Debbie and Trevor themselves, they, they get all the credit. They were already driving um, past the all limits that the world had set on them. And so they had lots of people and interesting kind of, uh, you know, conversations that were going on that the documentary was drawing some publicity and awareness. Um, 
And they, they certainly weren't thinking about becoming uh, scientific researchers at that time, right? Um, so it was, it was a fun conversation because um, they, they had really gotten to understand this concept of neuroplasticity, which is a fancy science word. It basically really is um, the ability to rewire your brain and, and either regain functions or, or, or gain new functions. Um, another word we think about it commonly would be learning, right? So in Trevor's case, relearning the abilities he lost. Um, so they were pretty. They were pretty savvy there, and I think they really got that. Um, you know, in their minds, they were like, "Yeah, there's no upper limit to this. So we're gonna we're gonna keep going." And and so our science experiment became, I think, for all of us, a way. Um, and we really did agree on this, and it has stayed this way since, to prove to other people that this was possible. So we all, I think, were really um, jazzed up by the concept of, yeah, let's do this because we can show the world um, that, you know, there's far, far greater potential than what we currently accept. Yeah. Now, I always make a point that it's really important not to fault um, the, you know, any clinician or any hospital or healthcare system if the experience is to manage um, the outcome around false hope. And, and the reason for that is, is quite simply, People don't realize that brains are very, very delicate and they're not like getting like a, you know, a broken arm or, you know, a Charlie horse or something where you can just shake it off, right? Um, an injury to your brain can be quite devastating. And when somebody comes aware of that, the first time is more often than not when they've had a brain injury. So it is really important and responsible to try and get them to sort of understand that, that, that this, was a, this is a very serious and, and could be chronic uh, situation yeah. and that what their new uh, reality has become. Um, so I think it's always important to manage that. The, the challenge becomes really allowing them to get to that place, but then um, moving through to say, okay, but what can I do? Yeah. Because this, this incredible hardship is now what I'm dealing with. What can I do? And that's where I think that's where we're making new, new strides and new um, advances and, and saying, well, actually, these are some of the things you can do. And, and this is the way you can move forward in, a, in a, you know, a positive and constructive and optimistic way. And the reality is, like, you just look at Trevor's example. He has absolutely positively in an innovative way impacted countless people across this planet um, and created unbelievable impacts uh, in his life. Um, and I think that that's a message of hope for all of us. Right. And I'm interested to know because I think that that's a really good point about false hope. And the reason I asked the question is because I also think it likely comes down to the patient. It seems like Trevor and Debbie, they had this determination. They had this willpower to, to try and push beyond um, what everybody was saying. When people put limits on them, it sounds like they wanted to see if they could go beyond it. And not every patient is like that. Some patients are just waiting for whatever their doctor tells them and then they go home and perhaps don't have that motivation. So I'm interested to know your thoughts on how the patient kind of plays a role in their own treatment. Because you ask somebody to do rehabilitation, maybe they don't, maybe they're not interested in putting in that work. So what is that like um, in those circumstances where the patient also plays a role in their journey? I think we face all, we all face that in life, yeah. right? It's not specific to whether or not you're a brain injury survivor or not. Um, it really becomes uh, a challenge. Um, that we all face in the sense of what your mindset is. And if you take a mindset that you say, okay, yes, I've encountered hardship. Um, and I, I am, this is what I, I choose to, to see this hardship. I don't choose to be passive. I don't choose to take 
you know, feel like a victim. Instead, I choose um, to, to really decide this is the way I'm going to, you know, uh, address this and, and, and emerge. And, and yeah, for sure, Trevor and Debbie are amongst the best examples uh, I've ever had the privilege to, to know, yeah. uh, to demonstrate that. And it's definitely the case, like, you know, if I have to do something bad, uh, you know, like I've got a bad day or I've, you know, I have to do something that scares me or whatever. I always in the back of my mind, um, I'm always like, yeah, well, if Trevor could do that, I can do this. Yeah. Right. And, and I've heard and, you know, read some media and uh, that people that were in his platoon, um, I think all of us who live this experience, um, we all actually, it's as it turns out, have that mindset, right? If, if Trev could do this, I can do that. Yeah, that is incredible. And I'm interested if you could tell us more about their relationship, because um, we see a lot of movies about relationships and not all of them are that high quality, but it really does sound like Trevor and his wife worked together through it um, and that she was there to support him in taking all of those steps. So what was that like for you to watch uh, their supportive network and how they process things together? Oh, Debbie's uh, unbelievable. She's amazing. Um, one of the things that the lessons that I've taken forward from this, um, there have been a number that I can now take to people who have survived brain injury and are looking for inspiration. Um, but for sure, uh, one of the, one of the pre predictors of a good outcome is you have to have at least one person in your corner, right? Mm -hmm. Who's, who's, you know, incredibly, uh, strong and intelligent and, and, you know, capable of advocating, uh, when, you know, you need them to. And, and Debbie is, um, you know, I think at one point I've been quoted as saying that she said she got her superhero back, but I would also equally say she was, she's always been and always will be Wonder Woman, right? Um, she's, uh, she's fiercely intelligent. She's a very, very strong, strong, um, leader and, uh, and has been, um, you know, that the two of them together, I think they've really helped to change the way people think about uh, devastating brain injuries or devastating things that can happen to you in life in general. Absolutely. And can you walk us through a little bit of the work you guys did together in order to get Trevor to a better position? What were uh, the main big steps that went on? Oh, well, we kicked it into science yeah. in short, right? Um, what we did is we, uh, they were already making these incredible gains. And we took, to be simple, we, we used advanced technology to take pictures of it so the world could see. Yeah. Um, so we used, um, you know, advanced MRI imaging and uh, other forms of brain imaging um, to actually show that his brain was, was rewiring itself and that you could see this neuroplasticity. And that was incredibly powerful. I mean, you know, I've often said they say a picture's worth a thousand words. In this case, a medical imaging picture's worth, you know, way, way, way more words. Um, when you show that the brain is rewiring itself and you've been working at that and you know that that's going to happen before um, the function comes back. So you can say, so instead of getting, oh, it's not working, you're like, actually, it is working. I can see it in my brain. So that would get them uh, to work uh, even harder and, and drive even more. Um, but to the clinical teams, it was medical grade quality imaging that they'd have to say, okay, we have to pay attention to this. This really is happening, right? Yeah. And, um, and so, yeah, it's... Um, uh, it was the primary way we've done it. It's the way we continue doing it. And, 
and now of course we're at a stage where um, we're having fun with it because we're you know we're crushing limits uh, we're getting a zerg set up for full out rowing um, we've used the most state of the art uh, technologies on the planet for neuromodulation this device called the pons which stimulates his brain and helps him break through when he hits limits and barriers right. um, so at this point yeah it's just um, it's really up to how much uh, y- you know we can do yeah and it also sounds like you had such confidence in them because I saw that they, I think, co-authored some of the papers. And I don't know if that's common. It doesn't no. seem like it would be common to no. have the patients be able to be involved in writing the paper. And I think that that's a huge statement of your confidence and belief in the work they did because uh, it, it sounds like you trusted them. So how did that all come Not, about? You know, yes, it is confidence. I won't say it wasn't. Um, it's actually more, I think, humility. Um, it felt, uh, first of all, to just to confirm what you just said, at the time when we contemplated uh, that they weren't the patient, they were part of the science team and they were on the papers and this has all been true and it continues to be true. And in the experimental uh, settings, Debbie was better at a lot of things than I was. So um, I I benefited greatly from that. Um, But uh, um, I had to go to consult sort of at at one level you know, people who knew a lot about how research is done in Canada. And I believe it wasn't the first it was ever done, but it was the second time, according to, you know, this one particular expert who really did know. Um, But we all felt it was also critically important uh, to do. And um, it it has turned out to be an incredible journey where... um, It, it, I think it was, or, or it was really organic because when we were designing the study, and we and I was like, okay, we're going to track your changes, um, but we need it scientifically something that's a control. It's not like I should, as some you know, uh, know-it-all scientist, say I think the control should be this. You guys were the ones that are changing your brain. You tell me what's the best control. And Trevor actually came up with um, mental imagery. Yeah. And at the, as soon as he said it, I thought that's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And what turns out why it's brilliant, I didn't realize at the time, but we did after. Um, Trevor was doing that all along. In the morning, he would, the first thing he'd think about is, this is what I want to do. Just like a lead athlete will imagine their task, he would imagine walking. And he does to this day. And the lesson he gave um, medical communities around the world uh, in perpetuity was that you can actually start rewiring your brain just by imagining where you want to go. And that doesn't cost you anything and you can do it anytime and you don't need any specialists. And what we could show in our science results was he was activating the exact same areas that we were rehabilitating. Right. And so um, that's been a very, very powerful scientific lesson. And if we had never included Trevor and Debbie, uh, we could well have done some, you know, uh, experimental uh, control that would have never shown that. Yeah. That's so interesting because it almost sounds like it makes sense in hindsight. Like it seems clear that when you're sitting there and you're like, well, if you focus on something and you think about it all the time, that you're going to have, your brain is working when you're thinking about those things. But it wasn't clear at the time, if I'm not mistaken, like believing that that could have that drastic impact on neuroplasticity, that wasn't known at the time, was it? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, so much of what's come out of this, um, we, we could have never predicted the magnitude of the of the impacts um it's it's i struggle to even put it into words yeah and it sounds like a lot of athletes now do this they go back home they think about the game they were doing it before okay um that's actually where 
we drew from that science to realize it would make a good control, but the concept that you could use it in rehab, because yeah. one of the big barriers to rehabilitation is access to expertise and money. Yeah. And this is um, completely breaks that barrier down. Absolutely. And moving forward, I think that this is so applicable to people's lives that Trevor had this dedication, regardless of where he was, he was trying to think of a way to do better the next day. And I think that that sets such a strong example for other people to try and do better in their own lives and try and figure out how can I do better tomorrow? If you're an artist, mm -hmm. how do you paint the better painting tomorrow? If you're um, like a neuroscientist, how do you learn more research so you can apply it in the next study? Uh, what did you gain? Um, and what did other people around you gain from that knowledge that thinking about things, concentrating, um, and like kind of planning that out has such a dramatic impact? I think the big, the big difference was that we'd actually understood that the brain had neuroplasticity in the science and research labs for a long time, but it hadn't made its way into clinical translation right. or even just our ability as, 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 human beings on this planet to use it on a daily basis yeah. and um that was that was, when we were doing this was right in the era where from a, a a clinical medical point of view it when i was trained as a neuroscientist on a stroke board the, the term neuroplasticity was a dirty word you wouldn't do that because of false hope yeah. and i saw firsthand the acceptance in the clinical worlds about the power of neuroplasticity Wow. And that was, that, I think that was pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. That is amazing. And I'm interested to know how the Poppy Fund came about and how, mm. how that started because I didn't know that there was a Poppy Fund, but it sounds like it had a huge impact on Trevor's ability to walk. Oh, it's, it's a huge story. Um, for those who are listening to this, and, you know, I love your podcast because it's about, um, at the heart of it, I think we all have aspects of, of hardship in life and we're all looking to say, okay, look, um, you know, how do I get inspired so that I go change my life? Like your story is yeah. amazing. Um, this is one of those examples where if you have, if you just have belief that if you keep powering on, good things will happen. Um, the way this, the Poppy Fund came was um, Trevor and Debbie were, were out and um, uh, there was, they were giving talks. And a young girl came up, um, they were actually competing for an exoskeleton. So these are these robotic um, sort of exoskeletons that help you assist walking and that sort of thing. And there was a competition, a global competition, and they, were com they, they ended up uh, competing for that and coming second. However, um, so they didn't get it because um, a large part, the field had developed it for spinal cord injury and they said, oh, well, we couldn't use it for somebody with, who survived a brain injury. And this, this young girl came up and she said, well, I saw your story. I was moved. And she had connections to the Legion. And so she took the story to the Royal Canadian Legion. And um, the head of the Royal Canadi Canadian Legion, an uh, uh, absolute um, dynamo named Inga Cruz, um, uh, basically launched a poppy campaign to fundraise for an exoskeleton. Cost about $125,000. And they had to hit stop right away because they surpassed that target and the donations just kept coming in. Wow. So the problem was then that they, they had the money for this technology, but it wasn't straightforward how you could use it in Trevor's case. So again, in comes our science and engineering teams, and we had to spec the, the best one, uh, which took me on a flight to Israel to go find the, the top one on the planet, bring it back to here in Vancouver. 
um, drive it over uh, to their place on the, on the island. And um, as we're doing this process, um, it's actually, uh, Inga is with another key member of our, our healthcare innovation team, Rowena Rosati. They're talking about the future of the Legion. And, you know, it's, it, it was, a, you know, the update was things aren't, there are challenges financially or otherwise. The Legion was needing to understand what's it going to look like in the future? How's it going to go forward? And out of that very conversation, while Trevor and I are fitting exoskeletons, came a concept and a bold vision to completely revolutionize the Legion, which, while it didn't have a lot of money, it had lots of great locations in all our communities. Right. And so that was kind of its asset. So this vision came to create a center of excellence for PTSD, mental health, and rehabilitation for our, our veterans and our first responders. Yeah. And as I sit here, that was in 2015, and as I sit here today directly behind me, um, I think it's about 11 or, story, uh, or 12 stories out of the ground, is a $312 million Legion's Veterans Village, which is doing exactly that. Wow. Right? Like, can you conceive that that 16-year-old was acting under the influence of the Taliban and was absolutely trying to, um, you know, end Trevor's life? Yeah. And as a consequence of all this science and innovation, we are revolutionizing how we can provide care for our, our, all of our veterans and our first responders. Yeah. Which Just a complete is turnaround. head spinning. Yeah. Right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. What was that like to go and look at exoskeletons from your perspective as a neuroscientist? Because to, I think all the listeners, they're like exoskeleton. I don't even know what this word is. And yet to go to Israel and to go look into these and try and choose the correct one. What was that process like? Well, it was always, I love Israel. It's the most innovative country on the planet. I've, been, I've, I've served uh, for Canada as a scientist to represent uh, us. Um, and so it's taken me to Israel many times. Um, but on this particular occasion, it was interesting uh, because it was, um, it was a little more dangerous than normal. And um, it was one of those times where uh, I, I remember thinking if Trev could do what he did, I can, I can get here and get the exoskeleton. Yeah. Um, and so, so it was, uh, it was definitely, it was definitely an adventure, um, that, uh, I won't soon forget. Yeah. Uh, but, um, I, it, uh, it was really critical and the exoskeleton itself became an assistive device. There's a couple of funny stories that came out of it. Uh, one was, um, this is actually when Debbie said she got her superhero back, um, we, we strapped the exoskeleton on. Trevor's big guy, six foot five. Um, and when he stood, and he hadn't stood like that in a long time, and he walked in his living room, um, that's when Debbie said, I got my superhero back. Yeah. Um, and he looked over to his youngest son, Noah, who wouldn't have been born, right, if, uh, if you know, the health system had put him in a hospital and got on with, you know, just yeah. thought he was going to be vegetative or, or just in long-term care. Um, and, uh, and he said, uh, Daddy's Bionic, yeah. which was super fun. We got it on camera. It was really neat. Um, but that was the moment, too, where the journalist said, well, what is, what is this like? You know, I remember at a big event we had, the journalist was like, so what's it like? And Trevor is, um, you know, he's so sharp, and he publishes books, and, you know, read his journalism, read his, the books he's written. They're just incredible. Um, but he, he sort of thought about it, and he said, like being dry humped by a robot, right? So, so his goal was never to have to rely on it. His yeah. goal was, I'm using this temporarily and I'm moving through it. And he did. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's now downstairs as, as, a, as a piece of, of the, the, the adventure and the journey. 
Oh we're God. using it now, I think, for other first responders and, and uh, veterans and that sort of thing. So it's, it's incredible, right? The yeah. poppy campaign, the money you gave because of your poppy created that outcome. Like, that is so hard to believe that, and stunning? not the story you hear when you're picking up your poppy though, but yeah. I'm sure one yeah. that should be told more often. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, you've also talked about how you have uh, like newspaper articles in um, a lot of your rooms where you're working with clients as like an inspirational story. And I'm interested to know your thoughts on the impact Trevor's stories had on others, but also what listeners can get out of Trevor's story. What, what should they be taking away from uh, Trevor story in your view. Oh, I'll answer your second one first. Um, I, we're we're working on the book Brains Unbroken. So I think in short and simply, we all can ex sort of start to figure out it, no matter what happens to your brain in life, how do I unbreak it? Yeah. Right. Mental health, same thing. You know, brain injury. It's not just brain injury. Lots of things. You know, they as we go through the adventure of life, it's wear and tear on our on our nervous system. Definitely. Yeah. COVID and the pandemic are probably the best current example. Yeah. Um, and so it just empowers people to think that way. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's for sure. Um, I, I forgot your first question. Uh, you have articles, news articles in a lot of your rooms, and I'm interested to know the impact of that you've gotten to see on patients in there as well, being able to see Trevor's story. Have you seen that oh, translate? Yeah, yeah. So Trevor's impact's nowhere near done. Yeah. Um, uh, that's for sure. But he's, um, so I've heard some uh, brain injury survivors uh, quote him as the, the Rick Hansen of, uh, of brain injury. And it's a really cute story because Rick was actually with him when he you know, got back to Vancouver and he was in the intensive care unit. And, um, and in fact, um, when we had the, uh, the TEDx talk that we did together, Rick was uh, also a big you know, part of that. So um, huge champion um, and, and big inspiration to Trev. Mm -hmm. um, I think... Uh, you know, the key thing with, with um, anyone who has something devastating that happens to their brain is they, they now understand and they can look to Trevor's example to really say, I don't have to accept what the reality looks like today. I, I can decide what I'm going to make my reality look like. Yeah. And so the inspiration comes from his story. And I always want people to know that's not a story that's over yet. Um, we're, still, we're still innovating the crap out of it. Yeah, that is so inspirational to know that there's someone out there who sets such a strong example. It sounds like as a young person, he obviously was a hardworking individual. And then moving forward, uh, he joins um, our Canadian military um, and does amazing work as a peacekeeper in Afghanistan and then comes back and continues to be an inspiration. Uh, can we also move into your life? And sure. um, how did you get started in this? How did you choose the field of neuroscience? What, what pulled you in that direction? Because I, I've seen a video of you talking about uh, the neural connections in our brain being more than the um, atoms in the universe. So I'm interested to how you got interested in neuroscience. Well, I always, I always joke that if I think back to my earliest memory, when people ask me, you know, what, when, when did you start to think you're going to be a scientist? I, I always used to um, take apart my toys. Yeah. And I figured out after that that was probably the earliest memory that of my curiosity, yeah. and I always wanted to understand how something worked. Um, and I've joked since that I was never going to be an engineer because I never really cared to put them back together. <laughs> um, so, so I think um, I really um, always liked biology and physics. Uh, those were two areas that I, I found really stimulating and um, and they ended up becoming, I, I ended up working at the interface of that. I, I ended up getting really interested in neurology and neuropsychology and neurosurgery. Um, 
And um, in my textbooks, I saw these amazing pictures of, you know, MRI technologies that could, you know, it's incredible. They could take these exquisitely complex pictures of, you, of your brain and inside of your body, and they never scratched you. They never poked or prodded you, yeah. right? And I was just like, wow, that's fascinating. So, so I really got interested in sort of non-invasive imaging and watching the brain in action. And, um, and I, I, I think when you make decisions in life, it should always be what's going what's gonna to empower you up, right? Like there's a lot of, um, you know, there's this concept of fixed mindset versus growth mindset. And people who are in a fixed mindset are thinking, okay, I've got to be an engineer, like I'm going for a title, yeah. or I've got to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. I think it should be more... Um, this is this is the impact I want to make, and what do I need to get there? And so neuroscience for me became, well, I want to I want to impact um, you know and unleash brain potential, my own around the planet and otherwise. Um, I kind of wanted to do that because there's a lot of scary problems, yeah. and I figure there's a lot of really really incredibly creative and smart people in the world that can solve those problems. So maybe what we can do is just help unleash that that capability. Right, and that's where it came to the functional connections and the, the untappable powers that are reside within our brain. Um, from there, I think I got um, really interested in the technology aspects. So I really got into the physics and engineering. And most people would sort of stay in their in their lane, so to speak. But I was like, you know, I, I allowed my curiosity to go. Okay, I've got I've got a sense of neuroscience. Now I want to have a sense of the underlying physics and the engineering of how we we peer into people's bodies um, and get the technological side. And then from there, I realized, um, as a scientist, we're really good at studying a problem, but we don't necessarily fix it. Yeah. And um, so that was when I realized in order to fix it, I had to learn that uh, the solutions go out in the world as business products or services. Yeah. And so then I had to decide, okay, so I have to learn... Um, you know, how business works. And, and it turns out I'm very entrepreneurial. So that's been a lot of fun. Um, but at the end of the day, they were all serving so that I could make a translational difference on how people's brains were able to power up. Yeah. Right. Every, every aspect of my story in some way, shape or form was towards that mission. That is why I think you are a role model because I see so many people uh, within the legal profession struggle to see how they would start a business. Even though, like my view of what a law degree is, is to just open doors. It just allows you to think critically about the different ways you can approach issues. There's so many different areas of law and it's supposed to be kind of your baseline starter to go and do other things and to try and figure out how you can play a role. And I don't think that people ask themselves enough, how can I make a difference? And I think that that often comes from people's lack of confidence in themselves and this lack of belief that they could ha- make a difference. And so I'm interested to know where that came about for you. How did you know that you could make a difference? What made you believe that oh, that was I even possible? I never did. I, never, I still don't. Um, I, I, I don't think it's, I, I would never want to say like someone to think, oh, you're confident that you can make a difference because I don't think I, I feel that confidence personally, okay. Okay. right? I feel the passion. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I like, I've had my fair share of hardship yeah. uh, throughout life growing up and otherwise. And, um, and that's, I think, in, in many ways, I've always turned that and, and you know, the, the, the things that people sort of think and like, you know, we use terms like anxiety as a negative, right? That's been my jet fuel. Like, I, I just, I feel like my hardship taught me life is short. And um, the, the, the tough stuff that happens in life um, 
teaches, I think, just motivates you and propels you to try and do something. So I'm always in awe of the resilience of the human spirit yeah. and the ability for, for human beings to tap something inside themselves uh, when they need to, uh, to actually do something about it, yeah. right? And I think... Um, I think if anything, I'd just say I don't want to. I don't want to look back and say, "Yeah, I didn't ever. I had the choice to act and to try and do something, and I didn't. Yeah. If I fail, that's okay, yeah. right? I can live with if I tried and I failed. Well, okay, at least I tried. But I'd say that almost everything I've ever done is, um, yeah, take a flyer. Yeah. My favorite um, symbol. It's on. If you check some of the stuff, I've embedded it. Um, I loved the animal, uh, the flying squirrel. As yeah. right from when I was a kid, I, I thought a flying squirrel was the most amazing animal because I watched them leap and they had no clue where they were going to land, but yet they 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 found a branch because they had to, right? Yeah. So I think sometimes people just have to just you know pitch off a tree and see where you land. Yeah, that is very inspirational. And I'm interested to know how neuroplasticity has kind of impacted your life because you're right, you started in a very scientific area, moved into the tech area, and those are all kind of like you're really pushing your brain to learn a new way of looking at things like physics and perhaps neuroscience. To me, they don't seem like they're, they overlap uh, very clearly. And then to move into business and entrepreneurship, these are all, at least from my experience, going from a criminology degree into going into law school, going into to podcasting it's like it's taken a lot of work to learn about the audio and video and sitting there for hours watching YouTube videos on on how to do these things mm -hmm. it really pushes my brain to figure things out what was that like for you to kind of go into new areas um, like with well, very little knowledge yeah so to contextualize this we're sitting right now on the top of a building um, that's in the health and technology district here in Surrey right yeah and right below us a uh, number of floors down is our neuroplasticity clinic yeah um, and Every day when we're in clinic, we're talking to people about the concept that there's nothing magical about neuroplasticity. We all have it. Yeah. It's all in us. Um, it's just whether or not you harness it for positive or it just sits there in a maladaptive way. Yeah. And um, so I think for me, it's, it's really about, you know, it's not random, right? If I just go through life... Um, the events of life will rewire my circuits, whether I want to or not. So a good example would be um, if, let's say I'm experiencing chronic pain, and that's bothering me on a daily basis. And then it'll get to a place where if I even see a picture of something that causes that chronic pain, I will feel the pain. I've rewired the circuits in my brain, right? And if I then imagine it, I visualize it, I will feel the brain. Yeah. So that's maladaptive neuroplasticity, right. right? It's the same thing, I think, I think, that we see when somebody goes from being sad to depressed or from being a little bit stressed to, you know, an anxiety disorder. Yeah. I think what happens is you have the ability to control that neuroplasticity. And so I think for, for the, the people that we, tr we help down below, for myself, for everyone, the idea is, okay, so what's my life need to be structured? so that I can actually direct neuroplasticity for good. And, um, and the realization you can is, is hugely freeing, right? So that, that's learning, first and foremost. I can learn. That's yeah. awesome. I can learn this. I can learn that. Yeah. You know, but you can, if, if you've had a concussion or you've had a stroke or, you, you know, you've had, you can, you, the idea that, oh, I can just rewire some new circuits and create some new pathways to hope is what we talk about. Yeah. 
then it becomes just really, okay, I want that and I'm willing to work for it and I'm willing to be disciplined and I'm willing to, to make this, the, the circumstance so that comes. Yeah. There's no magic in it. We see it in clinic all the time. Yeah. I think of like people who say like, it's all about your mindset. It's all about your mindset. And then finding out that the science absolutely supports that in that if you do bring this mindset. Mindset can, plus effort. Exactly. Yeah. And so having that mindset and being able to carry that forward and start taking action based on it is true. It's like that conventional wisdom of the elder saying like, uh, you need to practice your mindset and meditate and think about how you want things to be translates into the science saying, yeah, that's for the most case true. So I'm interested to know what your experience has been with that conventional wisdom that we all kind of have about how to live a good life and the science kind of overlapping with that or where you've seen that those uh, quirky statements that we all kind of say are true within the science. Um, I guess a better question is how do you go about um, approaching your day to day and making sure you have a healthy brain so that you can oh, go out and do gotcha. things? Um, you know, there's a common denominator I see across the Trevor Greens and, you know, the elite neurosurgeons and, and, and astronauts and professional athletes and people who work in, in business and health and otherwise. Um, it comes down to uh, really uh, discipline and hard work. And when you see these people, um, they are incredibly disciplined. They, they work, they work hard, but they don't, it's not like, you know, it, it, it's not like, um, you know, that's all you do. They, they you know, they balance that. But, but I think that we, we see these models all the time. I mean, you can look at an elite athlete training for a marathon or for, um, you know, any event really. And they apply this to improve and to maintain and to keep their performance. Yeah. And there's nothing that stops you from doing that in human, in your everyday life, right? Yeah. And my everyday life um, if, is, is like, I have to watch what I eat, I have to get my sleep, I have to keep my exercise, like the fundamentals, like we like as humans to complicate it, it's actually not complicated. It's hard, yeah. you know, I, I struggle to be disciplined. Of course I wanna not, I wanna break from all the things I know I need to do, but, but ultimately, I think if you just keep, you know, the, if, you, if you care enough and you want to make that goal, um, then you just keep going back to that place. And when you slip off, you pull yourself back. And, uh, but it's really not, it's, there's no magic. Again, it's um, everything I've ever seen from people who make massive impacts in this world, that's a common denominator. Right. They're incredibly disciplined. Can you tell us how your family, like we've talked about how Debbie and Trevor have kind of approached um, their adversity. Can you tell us about how your family has supported you or how you've worked together? Because in one of your TED Talks, Trevor talked about uh, that your, your partner is incredibly fierce and strong and that she was actually involved in that whole process. So can you share a little bit about that and what your family dynamics are like? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. So my wife, uh, Rowena Rosati, is a healthcare innovator. Um, she's one of the key movers and shakers in, in this whole equation, for sure. Um, she's, uh, she's done incredible things, driven, led, she's the, um, the brains behind the Legion's Veterans Village uh, revitalization. So, wow. so um, she's, uh, um, I, always, I always say your partner, you know, I, I'm happy I, I married up um, <laughs> in the world. Um, so, uh, you know, it, I've had massive support. Uh, from very close people like herself, um, uh, certainly my my immediate family, my kids, and um, my you know my family outside of that, um, both on my side and her side, um, 
that's that's been really critical, um, and it's fun to have those you know people that are championing you in your wings. I think the critical thing for the purpose of um, what's always what I'd want to say in this podcast, and also for for in general, I've said a lot. Um, I remember when I was studying, discovering that you only needed one positive influence in your life. Yeah. To, you know, I thought that was fascinating, right? I'd had a pretty, you know, some pretty big bumps along the way as I was going through, growing up and going through life. And the concept that you, you only needed to find one major positive uh, support and influence and mentor, it's huge, right? It gives you hope. It gives you, it's inspiring. And so no matter how bad it looks at the time, you're like, okay, well, it can't, you know, I'm not, it's not a fate of complete, right? This is not going to necessarily be a out, bad outcome. Um, and I would, I would almost guess if I asked you, you would say the same. Absolutely. Right? And so I think that's important for people to know because that's, um, that's when you start looking for who are those people really. Yeah. Right. Maybe you thought they were supposed to be this person, but it turns out it was this person. Well, just you know, take it from that, right? That's where it came from. Um, so that might be a, uh, you know, a parent, it might be a, someone in the community, it might be a mentor, but wherever they appear, I think as long as you know to, to really utilize that gift, um, you know, you're off to the races. And I've definitely had that. I've had the gift of tremendous support from key people in my life. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I've definitely had those moments of like, am I, should I be in this podcast? Am I the best person for this? And when you can tell that to somebody and they're able to remind you and tell you, hey, you can do this. I'm going to be there every step of the way, checking on the audio and the video equipment and making sure that everything else is good so you can focus on the interview. That makes such a difference and it's such a weight off my shoulders to have that type of support. I'm interested to know how you met your partner. How did that all come about? And if you could tell us um, how you guys ended up getting married. Oh, well, um, we, we were building the health and technology district. We just didn't know it at the time. Yeah. So I think we, uh, we had a vision uh, at the time. She was in charge of redeveloping uh, Surrey Memorial with the critical care tower and everything people wow. know Surrey Memorial to be now. Um, and I was coming in from uh, coming back to the province uh, as, a, as a BC leadership chair in health technology innovation. Right. Um, and I, uh, I was excited at the idea that there was this big blank slate Greenfield, what have you, in BC to, to really innovate uh, technology and make an impact on healthcare. Um, and, uh, and there was a combination of, of, a, of a number of us that created a vision of um, putting a, a health technology innovative sector in the province that would be the top in the world. Yeah. Um, and everyone thought it was wild and crazy because we were going to do this in Surrey. Yeah. Right? No one figured that this could happen in Surrey. And, um, and certainly, um, uh, Rowena uh, was one of the key people who really was on the forefront of that, as was um, uh, the mayor at the time, Diane Watts, um, and also uh, Kirk Fisher, who comes from the Lark Group and was brought, brought the business uh, level. And the interesting thing is that we all, we all just kind of held that vision. And as, and, you know, and as a, you know, kind of component of that adventure, uh, we, we are all very close. Um, and, uh, you know, Rowena and I discovered, uh, you know, that this was an amazing adventure together and we were cut from very similar cloths and that's how we, we ended up meeting. 
Awesome. And how did you guys end up deciding to, like, what was that first date like, or uh, how did you guys end up getting married? Oh, you know, I mean, I don't have to describe this to anyone. When you, when you meet someone who's like an angel, you, you know, I just try not to be stupid. As, <laughs> you know, I, I want to, you know, she's amazing. And, you know, we both want each other in our lives. And we've been able to build an amazing family together and have uh, just incredible kids and now grandkids. And uh, we've got just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really fun. Um, but it's uh, it's also people have this sort of talks about it like we're a power couple, which um, is funny, and we we sort of laugh at that. But I think we complement one another because I'm a bit of a scatterbrain scientist, right? Um, you know, up, heads in the, the blue sky sort of thing. And she's very much she ran hospitals. She's very organized. She knows how to execute and get things done. Um, and so you know, we we've always realized to play off of uh, of our collective strengths, and, right. and that's that's fun. It's a it's a heck of an adventure. That's awesome. Can you tell us about some of the businesses that you've started and, and been involved in uh, helping develop? Sure. Um, I probably would uh, tell you by technologies because okay. those are the things that go out in the world. So um, when I was with the National Research Council, I was with their, their top medical technology commercialization entity called uh, the Institute for Biodiagnostics. And um, we got to do some pretty fun projects. We, uh, I was a, a part of the team that um, helped. I wasn't the main driver in this one, but uh, uh, create the world's first intraoperative MRI. It was a movable MRI, which I won't get into the physics of it, but that's actually technically very challenging. Right. And it was the first uh, MRI company to ever come out of uh, Canada that I really know of right. um, that was successful and um, pretty impactful. Um, we, uh, we got to uh, create a number of other technologies. One that uh, definitely was fun was um, through the National Research Council, um, the simple question of, hey, wait a minute, when I get on a plane, these pilots were trained on simulators. Yeah. But, you know, if I go in for surgery, I have to ask the surgeon, is this the first time you've done the surgery or how many times? Yeah. And so we, uh, we said there should be a simulator for surgery and we decided, uh, the, the group, the team, uh, sort of decided uh, neurosurgery was uh, was the best starting point for that because it was complex and if we could solve it for that then it would generalize. And uh, so we created the world's uh, first brain surgery simulator right. which was pretty cool and that's gone off to CAE Healthcare um, and uh, is uh, now called NeuroVR. You can look it up, it's pretty cool. And that one you did a TED talk on, that was your TEDx, I think Brentwood, if I'm not mistaken. That was one of them, yeah, for yeah. sure, yeah, yeah. And you did that with a person. Can you, can you share that story? Uh, well, yeah, it was um, about the first year and a half in when we had a prototype. We thought it's time to take it prime time. And this was with um, the head of neurosurgery, David Clark, who's a good friend and a longtime uh, collaborator, um, and myself. Um, we were doing a lot of the advanced imaging and as part of this last large national network and so we had a lot of um we had a lot of ability to try this in patients and so we um we tried this um in ellen wright um and uh she had a brain tumor she had um grandkids she was worried about is this you know do i do i it wasn't a, a, like a an aggressive malignant brain tumor but she still was didn't really you know she was like i could have surgery to address this and take it out but i don't want to lose my ability to speak and 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 my important cognitive functions and so what we ended up doing is we ended up actually doing a full surgical rehearsal uh, which was the first time in, in the history uh, that, that uh, it's ever been done where she got to ask us, how did my virtual brain surgery go? Yeah. 
totally relieved before brain surgery, went through brain surgery, um, and that became a wild ride. Um, that was a global, um, wild, wild story uh, that uh, was really fun. Some in great parts about it, there was a press conference after, and I remember sitting in... Um, the, my vice president of research, who was a physician, said, you realize, right, not many people who do work in science um, get to get kissed by the, the very person they help, right? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, like that's the, the fun part about the translational part. Yeah. Um, but it was even more interesting because at the time, um, they were all, all the media and everyone in the room was, was, do, was playing with a brain surgery simulator, which was Ellen's brain. And I thought, well, that's a little weird because Ellen's sitting right there. Yeah. Um, and then it got more weird because Ellen got up and started doing surgery on herself. So that so is wild. Science takes you in some pretty amazing directions sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so were there any other uh, innovations that you were a part of? Because I do know that you received an award and some people on the panel included Mark Cuban and uh, Will I Am. Yeah, yeah, that was the global uh, technology showcase. That was when we really got to understand that we were onto something with this concept of a, of a scanner for your cognition um, and that, that you should have vital signs for your brain just like you do for your heart. Yeah. Um, and the first generation of that was called the HCS or Halifax Consciousness Scanner. Um, the real goal was uh, right now in super advanced labs like the ones I build and run, um, we can watch your brain in action in dizzying ways. Like the world is not even aware of the sort of power we can do in neuroimaging. But if you go to the doctor and you say, hey, I think there's something wrong with my brain. You know, I was playing hockey and I got a concussion or something like that. There, the, it's not controversial to say that the state of care hasn't changed since the 1980s. All right. So I, we always felt that that was a major problem to solve. You should not be able to go to a doctor and get 1980s care for your brain. Yeah. I mean, when you go, you don't get 1980s care for your heart. So um, in order to solve that problem, I think we broke it down and realized that the, pro the, the root of the problem is um, in medicine, we talk about you can't treat what you can't measure. And so we needed a simple me objective measurement system for how your brain is doing. And um, we realized that, wow, that's the gap. There's not even so much as a vital sign for how your brain is doing. Yeah. I can get my blood pressure and I can manage my cardiac health and I can make sure that, you know, if somebody says this drug is a good drug, I, if it's helping or not, I'll know, right? Um, but you can't do that for your brain. And so we decided that problem needed to be solved. Yeah. And uh, we created a, a vital sign framework scientifically and then we created uh, the NeuroCatch scanner, which is in this district in Health Tech Connects. Um, and uh, we just figured out how to turn it into a product and get it out in the world. And it's now on its second generation. It's deployed to, uh, I think it's over 40 sites in North America. It's uh, testing in hockey, football, MMA, um, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, we use it in our own clinic for multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, and that sort of thing. It's used uh, widely. It's, it's really great. So I think of like, I'm a huge fan of the UFC, and I think of them going into a fight prior, it kind of sounds like you would be able to test to see whether or not like a fight or uh, certain brain injuries show up or if their brain is operating differently after the fact. How does that all work? Yeah, that's exactly how it works. Um, it, it turns out that when we all want to stay fit physically, um, but we also, I think, all want to stay fit uh, brain health-wise, right? Yeah. Cognitively, let's say. So... Um, whether or not you're a peak performer or not doesn't matter, but certainly in peak performance, we can now measure you and help you think faster and help you have more cognitive agility. Wow. And so if you're 
performance happens to impact that negatively, uh, for instance, you're an elite athlete and you get a concussion, we, we, can, we can actually also measure you and find the treatments to uh, get you back. And um, we're doing that now re regularly and frequently and often and trying to get it out to as many people as quickly as we can. That is incredible to hear. And you're saying that that's at 40 different sites in North America, whereas prior, it was, this wasn't even an option that people could consider. Didn't exist. We'd give you a paper and pencil test, or we'd take a very expensive MRI picture of you, of you which effectively amounted, if you think of your, of your brain as like a high-performance engine in a, for, a Formula One, yeah. um, you know, if I pop the hood and I take out my iPhone and take a picture, and you, your problem is you slip from first to third, yeah. that's not going to tell me anything, yeah. right? You need to have a really sensitive measure of the performance of the engine. And that's what this does. Right. And it sounds like you make it accessible, like you figure out the technology, but then it's also a process of trying to figure out how to make it scalable so that people can actually pay for it in the market. Yeah. What is that process like? Are you involved in those conversations of how do we make this something that people could actually afford to buy for their hospital? Oh, a thousand percent. Yeah. It, the good news is we picked right for from the outset, so we picked an affordable technology. Brainwave scanning is actually can, uh, becoming increasingly affordable, um, and uh, so so we knew we picked ahead of time, knowing that it will get better and better. Um, right now, uh, we put a cap on your head with a couple of sensors, and we measure it. It only it's automated. It only takes six minutes. Um, but uh, our goal is is to really continue pushing the envelope so that you can have that access. I sort of, I, I envision a future, I, right from go, I envisioned a future, we can walk in into our grocery store and get our blood pressure, Yeah. right? There's no reason why you can't be anywhere on this planet or actually, actually some cool stuff, we're taking it um, up into space. Uh, so um, beyond this planet right. um, and find out how your brain's doing. Yeah. That, so could you elaborate on that? You're working on trying to find a way that we can measure the effects of perhaps space on people's brains. Yeah, so we're working with, uh, we're funded by the Canadian Space Agency and we're working with this uh, amazing group of space health researchers uh, because as we are uh, moving off of our planet, um, there's a couple of inconvenient biological truths. Um, astronauts who spent some time in space come back with uh, uh, symptoms that indicate that there was some damage to their brain. And so um, we know that when you alter your gravity or you're in a changed radiation, that that has biological effects. And so, uh, you know, I wouldn't be signing up for long-term living in Mars quite yet. Right. Um, but, uh, but I think that the critical thing is that we, um, we've created a very lightweight, automated, um, and highly deployable, even in, in uh, you know, tough environments, uh, technology. Yeah. So what we're, what we're doing now is um, you know, getting set to, to measure the effects of, of, uh, of uh, uh, pre and post trips to space, and then getting sort of building the, the technology so that it could be used um, there. Uh, we've had it, of course, uh, throughout uh, on all sorts of uh, you know, challenging environments on the planet. Right. Uh, so it's kind of a logical next step. What is that like to be involved in something like you're involved in something where that's going to be used in space? Like, what is that like for you? Is that surreal? Is that just a normal day in your life? Like, what is that like for you to be involved in these projects it's that fun. most people can't even imagine? It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's you know, um, I mean, no matter what happens, I think it's, I always try to tell my son, like, I like we're all born perfect, right? You're, you know, when you're born, you are absolutely perfect and 
life has not yet dealt its its adventure on you and that adventure and you know i mean if it was a if it was like a train ride that was flat it'd be boring so it's a roller coaster with lots of up and downs and that's okay because i i wouldn't want it to be flat but the reality is that that um that comes with wear and tear it comes with hardship um it comes with lots of challenges uh, which make it rich uh but it also makes it tough and so i think when you you know when i think about my career I love what I'm doing so much that no matter how tough it gets, I'm up the next day and waiting for, you know, what are we doing today? Because it's going to be so much fun. Yeah, that is really important, I think, for people to think about, because I don't know about you, but I see a lot of people kind of directionless, kind of feeling like they don't know where to go. And I'm interested to know what your kind of journey through school was, because it seems like it would have been a lot of work to get where you are today. And it it seems miraculous that you're here today having such a huge impact but it took a lot of work to get to here today and so I'm interested to know what your university experiences were like Uh, were they a challenge was it some of the best years what was that whole experience like to go to school Uh, because a lot of people they kind of get bored of the whole school environment no for sure I grew up in Williams Lake um, which is uh, of course a small town in the interior BC Um, it um, I think it was in my family, it was always the expectation of, of going to university because I had a, a lot of um, uh, people in my family have, and, and that, that was a big value. I never saw the value of school yeah. when I was young. Um, I, I used to commonly get uh, you know, the message that came from the report cards and my father, who cared a lot about this and really invested and really made this happen, um, was, uh, was um, you know, Ryan, you're, you, if you applied yourself, you know, you could do you know, the teachers know that you, you could do well if you wanted to sort of thing. Um, I didn't know. I don't think I knew that or believed that. So I didn't have my own self-confidence in that. But, um, you know, uh, I, got, I got sent, uh, you know, to a school that helped me to get into, into um, university. Um, it was a private school, a boarding school on the island, Brentwood College. I'm still working with them to this, and you know, two days from now we'll be doing concussion scanning. Um, so uh, that was very formative because it brought in discipline and structure, um, and taught me um, at least those aspects when I wasn't necessarily figuring that out. Um, when I got into university and undergrad, um, I I almost got myself like kicked out. Of, uh, of UVic and that's because I didn't really prioritize school I prioritized almost everything else you could do when you're in university which um, I don't regret but uh, you know that's not a long-term strategy yeah. um, so there was a big turning moment when I was in University of Victoria where I realized the value of um, an undergraduate education it opens up your mind in ways you can't describe and allows you empowers you to think in ways that you never understood before you could do it yeah. And so I had a massive moment there, and it also lit up my curiosity. Um, and I was around some really good mentors, um, a world-leading uh, brain injury uh, neuropsychologist named uh, Catherine Mateer. And I got really interested in the concept of going into neuroscience. And I was fascinated with the brain, and I was fascinated with technology. And so that took me um, on an adventure over to Halifax and Dalhousie. Yeah. Um, and at Dalhousie, I was in... Um, 
they, they actually have, and they, they still have, and they definitely did at the time, one of the Canadian leading neuroscience training programs right. that trained you in the medicine, trained you in the, the sort of the, the psychology, the physics, and all of aspects of it. Um, the graduates I've since come to appreciate that came from the same cohort I were in were, were incredibly um, talented and have been successful. Um, so I was really fortunate that... Um, you know, I, I always say I don't think through a lot of the decisions I make in life, and I didn't. I wasn't. I was too scared to go to the states or somewhere else, so I wanted to stay in Canada. I wanted to stay near an ocean, so I knew maps well enough to know that Halifax and Nova Scotia had an ocean. Yeah. And um, yet, I stumbled into uh, you know an incredible program. Um, <coughs> that that led me to. Um, uh, really getting excited into the translational aspects of it uh, because we were doing a lot of really good translational work with uh, John Connolly being my supervisor and really taught me about the importance of that. And, um, and uh, that um, led me to the National Research Council uh, where I was a neuroscientist hanging out with physicists and engineers. And um, so I, I had an incredible mentor there who is probably the top health technology innovator in Canada, unprecedented, a, a guy by the name of Ian Smith. And... Um, and he really taught me about the value of benefits to Canada and what that really means and how we can use what we do to um, really position Canada on the world stage in terms of uh, health technology innovation. Um, and that model followed me here back home. Um, and that's what led to, uh, you know, along that way, by the way, I should mention that we built a, a biotech cluster in Halifax. and. That's led by a close friend and colleague, Stephen B.A., and it continues to do incredible world-class things. Um, but I, when I finally got back here, um, I really wanted to do it on home soil. Yeah. And uh, we did. We are. Can you tell us about what that means to lead Canada in something, to help uh, bring Canada to the world stage? Because it's clear that you've been involved, and I'm hoping you can tie in some of the papers you wrote, because we hear about how um, brilliant people write papers, and they do research, and then they write articles about it. But that does contribute to our scientific understandings and the base knowledge of society on certain issues. And you've contributed a lot. You've written a lot of articles and published a lot of information. And I don't know if normal Normal people who perhaps aren't involved in science understand how important that is to develop this scientific literacy on a topic and to to share that. So, what has that been like to be involved in the development of our Canadian scientific understandings and to contribute, uh, put Canada on the world stage? Yeah, well, I'll take I'll take the papers first, and then I'll talk about the, the sort of Canadian part. Um, yeah, so. People wouldn't realize that publishing scientific papers, I was told early on in grad school, is like basically competitive sport. Yeah. Um, it's very, very competitive and challenging and, and grueling, right? And so um, it, uh, what's great about that, particularly in today's day and age, is that that whole process ensures that your evidence is curated. And in these days... People are getting access to information that is simply not evidence. It's misinformation. It's disinformation. It's definitely affecting our world in ways we all know. Um, the scientific publications are where we get our knowledge from, right? And that increments and grows and accumulates over time. And so that, that process is, is critical to humanity. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've been active in that process now for uh, quite a number of years. It's coming up, it's over 25, I'm coming up on 30 years. Um, I still love uh, writing papers. Um, I think it's, a, it's an incredibly tough process, it's rigorous, um, but at the end of it, um, you're contributing new knowledge, and that's a huge privilege. Um, 
the 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 papers um, also then sort of put you into a world stage as being a sort of a world expert in your particular area. Um, and then you get the opportunity to do things that most people don't realize scientists do. Uh, similar to the Olympics, you're out on the global stage um, in a very, very big way. And I've, I've had, um, because of my roles, um, I've had this incredible privilege to represent Canada for neuroscience and for innovation um, through our foreign affairs departments, um, through our science. Um, I think I had one thing that probably differentiated me. I, I, um, I always felt it was a priority to be able to explain what you did. Right, not not to sort of make it jargony and technical so people couldn't understand. I always felt if you needed to do that, you weren't confident in you know your own knowledge of it. Right. And if you really understood something, you could explain it to anyone and tell them why it was valuable. Yeah. Right, and why you were doing it. And um, and so I've spent a lot of time, and I think it's a big responsibility that I I, I personally uh, feel is important um, is to communicate science to everyone. Yeah. And our science and what we do and why it's important and why, you know, why I, I, I love doing uh, podcasts like this. Yeah, no, and I think that that is so valuable because I was able to learn a lot about your role and the work you've done through your TEDx videos. And I'm interested to know how those kind of opportunities came about. Did you go looking for them to say, hey, I need to get, the, we need to tell people, we need to get the word out? Um, or was it something uh, that you've just always kind of been involved in of just kind of communicating science and these were just opportunities? to do so yeah it's it's a little more towards the latter um i think one of the things that scientists uh there's not it's it's changing now it's changing but but we're coming from a place where scientists didn't communicate um beyond the the public the realm of publication and conferences it wasn't a priority and they didn't ha they don't necessarily have the skills to to communicate um in kind of a more of a a, a uh, a general knowledge and to general pop, uh, individuals in, in a way that's accessible. That's not what they teach you in, yeah. in, you know, when you're trained. Um, so by virtue of, of having that somewhat unique skill, um, I've always throughout my career, um, people have come to me and asked me to do these sorts of things. Um, and um, I've always then prioritized it. Um, I think you can see good examples of that. I always looked up to David Suzuki and his ability to do it. Right. Um, and, and I think that I've always tried in the people that I've trained and influenced, I've, I think I've given them uh, that skill as well. And they're now, I think, far better than I am, which is awesome. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just one of those things that it's important for scientists to do. And as we do more of it, I think um, it'll stop being so uh, esoteric. Yeah, absolutely. And I think of, because I really enjoy being able to learn from people like yourself. Um, and I'm interested to know if you have any other neuroscientists that you enjoy listening to, because I listen to uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman. I'm not sure if you're aware mm -hmm. of his work. Yeah, I know. Um, Dr. Yeah. Matthew Walker. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit about um, them? If you, if They're you're... both really good examples of what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, I, Andrew, in particular, is doing a fabulous job. Um, I think, uh, you know, there are a number of people coming out who have understood the value of science communication yeah. um, and uh, and it's becoming increasingly much much more important I mean if you just look at you know the pandemic alone we 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 published a paper it's just coming out now anticipating that COVID would affect your brain yeah. right we're launching a brain fog initiative around COVID and other things that cause brain fog but um, um, the concept all of us across the globe 
immediately I've got a I've got a have had to get a whole lot more educated on you know vaccines and you know the impacts on lung function and lo and behold brain function. Yeah. But it turns out that's a positive because um, you know there's a lot of like if you look at our opioid crisis if you look at our homelessness the root cause of that for example is mental health. Yeah. Right. So how do you better empower a society than making sure that that people like the Andrew Huberman's of the world are telling people how the brain works so they can take charge of their own mental health? Yeah, right? I, I couldn't agree more. And to me, it was a huge statement because I'm a person going through like elementary, middle and high school. My teachers doubted whether or not I would ever graduate. They doubted whether or not I was a critical thinker. And uh, that kind of carried through through my undergrad of being like, am I really a smart person? Am I really able to critically think? And then I tune into somebody like Andrew Huberman and go like, I just sat through like a three hour podcast breaking down how to focus or how to sleep better or how to do these things. And it's like, to me, I think for so long, our news media kind of underestimated the intelligence of the populace that most people aren't able to understand these these topics and we shouldn't go into them because they won't understand. And I think Andrew Huberman, Dr. Matthew Walker, they kind of uh, poke a hole in that, showing that there is a huge demographic that are interested in learning, even if they didn't attend university. Yeah, yeah, I, I think um, I'm hopeful that pretty quickly we'll almost blow up the concept of IQ, yeah. right? Because um, it's, it, it, it served its purpose. I'm not saying that, you know, that um, there aren't positive aspects that have come from the concept of IQ and intelligence. But what we're understanding from a neuroscience standpoint is we are all intelligent in our own incredibly special and unique ways. Yeah. And the key is find, you know, find your swim lane, right? And um, challenge, of course, for schools, which I, I feel sympathetic for, is they can only really, because they have to teach everyone, they can only teach in a certain way. And so if you, if you land in that, in that sector, it's good for you. But so often, I was one of them, um, you, you weren't necessarily right aligned with exactly how you were supposed to learn in school. Yeah. And when you find out after the fact that, hey, wait, that doesn't mean that I'm stupid. Yeah. Um, I have my own intelligence in this way. Then, you know, you optimize the, that with everything you got. Yeah. And that's that's basically what I've tried to do, and that's certainly what I would try to tell my son, uh, encourage him to do. Right? You just find find your superpower yeah. and go for it. Can you tell us about how you've approached that, or how you've tried to help others kind of develop that? Because. Um, I think that our society right now, we're too attached to our phones. We're not getting enough sleep. Uh, I think both Andrew Huberman and Dr. Matthew Walker make a good argument that sleep is kind of the bedrock for everything. So how do you try and take care of yourself? And what advice do you give to patients trying to improve their brain health and their well-being um, when you're working with them? Is that like you just need an eight-hour sleep? How do, you, how do you go about trying to help yourself and others? Uh, well... I, I live by my kind of uh, my trifecta or holy trinity of um, sleep, exercise, and diet. Yeah. Right. And um, and it's it's unique to what I need, and I know what I need. Um, but it's it's always like you're walking on a balance beam because life wants to knock you off. So you always have to just get on the balance, stay on the balance beam. Right. Keep your sleep. Um, you know, if you if you get it knocked off, work to get it back. Watch your diet and religiously make sure you exercise, right? We know now, for example, that, and, and we have actually known this for a while, exercise is incredible, like it extends, it, it expands your lifespan 
um, greatly. Yeah. In fact, some of the stuff we're doing in the lab where we neuromodulate to recover people like Captain Green uh, with technology is based off the neuromodulation effects of exercise. All right. Right. So um, your body really needs those things and they're critical to maintain in a disciplined and structured way. Um, and, you know, I don't differentiate uh, people are people, right? You're not somebody who's a patient to me or who's had a brain injury. You're a person. Yeah. And I'm a person. And I, I imagine I was at the, the bike park and took a fall and cracked my head. And I, I could call myself a concussion uh, patient if I wanted to, but I'm not. I, you know, I now have the ability to recover from that, make sure that I get um, you know, my sleep, my exercise, my diet. I'm rigorous. I do what I need to do. All the information is out there. I think our problem, if you want me to get a little kind of like heady about it, yeah. is... Um, when we evolved and our brain kind of, because we went from all fours to walking and our brain kind of flopped down like this and we grew this big frontal lobe, right? Yeah. You know, and we got really an ego about it. We we're like, haha, we're different than any other animal because you get this big frontal cortex and it gives us executive function. I think the problem is if I was other animals on this planet, I'd be laughing at us, yeah. right? Because we could complicate things. You know, um, we're like, oh goodness, I need to, you know, uh, I, I need to, because I'm scared, I need to not take the vaccine. Um, you know, even though a six-year-old will say, well, the vaccine saves millions and, the, and COVID kills uh, millions. Uh, you know, it, like we just overcomplicate things. So if we could learn how to like utilize our frontal lobe sometimes for good and then park it and just do what any other basic living creature would do that's good for you, yeah. I think it'd be good. Yeah. You know, we overthink things too much. I don't disagree. And I think that people get into their own heads and often lack that action that we were talking about earlier of just moving forward in the best direction and taking those small steps forward. Um, I'm also interested to know about what podcasts or where do you get your information from? How do you go about learning new things? Because I think that it's always interesting to know what books you're interested in. How can people learn about the field in an accessible way? Sure. Um, yeah, I um, I read uh i well it sounds uh, in uh, dishonest if i say i read i listen to audiobooks yeah. um because that's the time i can get my reading in um uh, uh always um you know i i would say on the order of at least 15 a year yeah. or so i'm always of course reading science because that's part of my job yeah. um so i'm always reading science articles um i i i haven't done podcasts yet but i'm getting interested in it yeah um, but again, it's, I'm always, um, there's no one theme. I'm always picking off what, it, what I feel is interesting or important for me to have to dive into now for what I'm trying to accomplish. Right. Um, so so it, it really depends. These days, it's about scaling a business and building a business successfully. So I'm, I'm waist deep in, in you know, learning how businesses grow. Yeah. Um, but uh, sometimes it's about... Uh, psychology and mindsets. Um, uh, it, it could be about uh, um, neuroscience. I rarely, I rarely do stuff that is. Um, I've, I haven't had a lot of time to do fiction. Yeah. Um, if, if and when I slow down, I'll probably uh, remember what fiction is like. Right. That, that is fair. And I'm very much the same way. I'm very interested in like the science of things right now. And like my, I lean towards the Dr. Andrew Huberman's rather than fiction stories. I'm all, you mentioned brain fog. Um, my friend Jacob, he's um, been in a few car accidents and he's been struggling with brain fog. Can you elaborate on some of the research you've been involved in and um, where you're taking this new research with? Uh, yeah. 
yeah, this president. is really exciting for us. This is what we're working on right now. So it's kind of, um, you know, in the hopper, so to speak. Um, we, uh, we analyzed the problem around COVID and impacts. I, I mentioned earlier, we, we're publishing an article on that right now. Um, and the, the, what emerged from that was the concept that I think what's relevant to many of us right now is the concept of brain fog. Um, it became very much relevant because of COVID, because, but it existed before COVID. Uh, concussion, your example, is, uh, is one of the areas of, that uh, people report brain fog. Um, another is actually uh, from chemotherapy and radiation therapy. What um, is brain fog? It's a subjective term. Um, where somebody describes that they don't feel that their cognitive acuity is what it used to be. Right. And um, we, with our, our technology, have an objective sensitive measure to say if that's the case or not. And more importantly, we have found and are finding and are, and are implementing protocols and, tech, and interventions and, and treatments that um, if, if that is the case, we can get you back there. Right. So to me, brain fog is a problem to solve. Yeah. And so what's the research going on now in regards to that one? We're just launching a really exciting multi-center uh, Canada-US trial um, with collaborators uh, in the States, uh, Mary Kay Ross and I. She's a, a, a functional medicine and emergency medicine physician. She's wonderful and amazing. Um, we are um, going to uh, enroll people who have reported brain fog um, from the, those different uh, results that I mentioned, COVID and concussion and cancer. Um, and we're going to measure them and we're going to uh, move the dial uh, with the leading intervention. So um, I'm super, super excited about this. Um, yeah. I'm spending a lot of time right now uh, really uh, making sure this gets launched and, right. and gets underway. What are those leading interventions? Um, so some of them are diet. Uh, we've got collaborators at Mayo Clinic who are looking at um, uh, uh, the product name, which is, um, uh, you can get it through Thorn, um, is uh, Cinequel. Okay. Um, but uh, it's, it's looking like, um, it's, its scientific name is called uh, N-acetylcysteine. And it, it's been, there's been some studies done to show that that actually can be um, preventative or we call prophylactic uh, for concussion and brain injury. And so we're interested in measuring that. Um, we're also looking, uh, for those who are interested, um, cognitive gyms are, are something to think about. Um, we work closely with a, a company out of San Francisco, um, Posit Science, that's created Brain HQ. And that's basically taking your brain to the gym. Um, and uh, it's done based on hardcore neuroscience um, uh, out of uh, a, a phenomenal neuroscientist by the name of Mike Mersnich. And um, so we use that routinely for cognitive uh, training and cognitive um, improvement. Um, and then the final thing we're doing, which is where um, this is pretty sort of, you know, le leading edge, we're using um, the, what's called the PONS device, which is a neuromodulator. It stimulates your tongue and it stimulates your brain so that when you're doing interventions, um, they have an augmented neuroplastic effect. And, uh, and so we've, we were the group that really did a lot of the science in the ponds and really understand how, uh, not that anyone understands it fully yet, but we're getting pretty good uh, line of sight in how it works uh, in the brain. And it's completely non-invasive. It's not a, a pharmaceutical or a drug. It's not surgery. And we're seeing uh, breakthroughs in our, in our clients and, and in healthy individuals that are stunning. Um, so, so it's kind of going to be a combination. We'll curate, we'll find the technologies that are promising. We'll do the evidence-based studies. If they work, then we'll implement them clinically to help people with brain fog. 
Could you elaborate a little bit more on that last part about the neuroplastic um, effects of the tongue? What could you elaborate more on that? Yeah, for sure. It came out of actually Norman Deutsch's book, uh, The Brain That Heals Itself, which yeah. is a really great book. Um, and uh, he reviewed it. And then actually it was Trevor and Debbie who sort of said, hey, Ryan, have you heard about this Pons device? It's born out of hardcore neuroscience at a University of Madison, Wisconsin, um, led by um, uh, a couple of great scientists, um, uh, Yuri Danilov and Mitch Tyler and others. Um, they started stimulating the tongue with an electro grid to give people who ha were blind a representation of the world. So they had this amazing videos where they, they, these people who were blind from birth, um, you'd roll a ball across the table and they'd catch it. And it caught everyone's attention. Then they got smart and they put a, they lit up the dot in the middle of the electro grid. So it just you know, creates some stimulation on your tongue and you could feel the dot in the middle. And they tied that to uh, what we call accelerometers, the same things that are in here, right? That yeah. track your steps. Your, yeah. um, and, uh, and so that you could tell around your balance. And so people who have balance problems, more often than not, you find a, a lot of people that have had concussions and brain injuries have problem with balance. And so they started doing trials with uh, people with balance and showing that when you stimulated the tongue and you did rehabilitation, when they couldn't recover before, now they could. Yeah. Um, and so that was pretty stunning. So the U.S. Army uh, funded a big trial. Um, it, it sort of involved the championing of Montel Williams, who was using the pawns to get better from MS. Um, and uh, and we ran. We were one of the top sites in that trial, and we helped uh, to that trial uh, demonstrate that in a very uh, strictly controlled trial, we could um, uh, show great, great improvements in people with uh, mild to moderate brain injury um, in their balance and gait. And and subsequently, we've been able to show that it, it has a bit of a watershed effect. So their cognition, their mood, all those things seem to get better too. Wow, and I've heard, and I could be mistaken, but that the, the tongue is one of the first things to develop when you're born. Yeah, uh, is that true? It's it's the tongue is interesting uh, from a neuroanatomy and neuroscience point of view and historically, um, and the reason for that is our brain has these sort of these cranial nerves that go into the core of your brain. So the tongue is innervated by cranial nerves, um, and um, they're very old in terms of evolution and, and also they, you know, they're very much uh, sort of at the core of, of your brain as you develop. And they, they go into uh, your brainstem where all other inputs go in. So in a way, um, the thinking is that the stimulation through these nerves um, actually stimulates uh, other, air, uh, other sort of relays in your brain um, so that you actually have more of a global stimulation. And um, I mentioned earlier that, in fact, right now, uh, what we're looking at is that um, exercise has got a similar mechanism where that does a lot of really good things for your brain. It helps in terms of your, um, your circulatory supply, your base neural activity, sort of resetting it, um, your chemistry, um, and, uh, you know, all sorts of good um, chemicals, uh, we call neurotrophic factors, that neurons love to have. Yeah. So it just has a, it's almost like the way I describe it to people is uh, we all have when our computer kind of hangs up and you power it down and power it up and it sorts itself out. Yeah. It's sort of the biological equivalent of that. Yeah. And I've heard Andrew Huberman talk about um, looking at like when uh, it's morning time, seeing the morning light actually helps reset your circadian yeah. rhythms yeah. and seeing that in the evening helps reset your circadian rhythms and puts you back on track. And, they, um, and he taught me that your eyes are part of your brain. 
And so I'm interested to know your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, well, there's lots of really good research coming down the pipe that um, is opening up a massive blind spot in neuroscience. Um, I think we, we thought a lot about getting into the brain, um, you know, from neurosurgery, and we even magnetically stimulate it. But it turns out, of course, Mother Nature has been around a lot longer and is a lot smarter, had open channels up to us the whole time. Right. Through, um, you know, whether or not it's uh, the sensation of your tongue or your eyes or your ears or otherwise. So there's this incredible science right now that's sending signals in on those channels and being able to finally sort of um, interact with your brain in ways that are unprecedented. And, and uh, if, I had, if I had to bet where some of the biggest uh, impacts in neuroscience are going to come in the next uh, five to ten years, it's going to be in neuromodulation. We see it in Parkinson's with what's called galvanic vestibular uh, uh, stimulation. Uh, we see it, uh, there's some research that's come out in Alzheimer's in, in animals that if you, you're flashing lights um, and you're presenting um, other stimulation on other channels, it breaks down uh, beta amyloid plaques, uh, which is the culprit in Alzheimer's or one of them. Right. And so, um, so yeah, it's, it's, I would say why this is something to pay attention to is it's not surgery and it's not drugs. Right. right? It was there all along right in front of us. That's, so. This really leads into your brain vital signs work. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that work um, and what are brain vital signs? So the concept of brain vital signs is that, um, I, I spoke to it a little earlier, it was to simplify the complexity of neuroscience. Yeah. Right? Um, and I think sometimes when I mention brain vital signs to people, they're still looking for complex. So they're like, and I'm like, no, it's simple. You know what a vital sign is, right? Yep. Uh, blood pressure, you know, heart rate, you're right. So why don't we have one of those for uh, brain? And I think that was the big barrier. People really struggled with, well, we can't. Why can't we? Right? Why not? And so what we did is we, we took, using blood pressure and, and pulse socks and other ones, but primarily blood pressure, we, we reverse engineered from existing strong neuroscience that's been around for 100 years, how could we extract something that we could use as a vital sign? And that came from recording brain waves. So we measure your electricity of your brain through what's called EEG or electroencephalography. And um, we ping your system, you know, your supercomputer brain. We just basically present stimuli. Um, we present it now through headphones, but we can do it on, on any way, yeah. right? And we elicit incredibly well-known responses. Um, and then we turn those responses into something simple that you can look at, just like 120 over 80 is your vital sign for your brain. Yeah. What has that been like? What did, like, it just seems hard to believe that that wasn't something that was already kind of being developed and pushed. And it feels like it's such an important innovation that, like, look, hearing you say it, it makes so much sense that we would need this. But how, what do you think of the development of this and that other people weren't, um, working on this or trying to make this happen? Well, all science innovation comes from a group of people working on similar problems at the same time. I think we were fortunate to break through in turning it into a simple vital sign framework. Right. Um, I think that what it's been like has is, is been fascinating and amazing because we've had incredible collaborators, clinical uh, collaborators, um, who have really been like, wow, this is so important and we need this. And that's from the highest level. I mean, we've had, you know, from the outset, we've had support from the Mayo Clinic, uh, both their, uh, um, their sports concussions teams and their neurology teams. Um, and um, they've helped guide this, and they're the top hospital in the world. 
Um, we've had incredible support from in pediatrics from Alberta, from uh, neurologists who are close friends and colleagues, um, from Toronto, from Vancouver here, um, from Cornell around um, uh, patients that are thought to be vegetative yeah. and using this to show that they're in there. Um, you know, the list goes on from Florida around, um, uh, you know, elite athletes going into the NHL from concussion. The, the clinicians are driving this now. Yeah. They're saying this is critical and this is how we need it to look to be most effective. Right. So with all humility, our job is to be, um, and I'm not a very good listener, but so it's a challenge for me, um, but it's uh, is to be really good listeners, to listen to, um, uh, to the people who need the tool and just do the best we can to develop it along those lines. Right. And what do you think the long-term implications? We obviously have heart rate monitors on. Where would you like to see this go over the next 50, You just pointed years? to it. Yeah. Um, I... I envision a world where um, it's not only that you could get it at a doctor's office or at a you know a shopper's drug mart or a, a, a drugstore um, and any clinical point of care on the planet right. but I actually envision a world where um, you can do it at home as easy as you can listen to uh, your favorite music on um, iPods Wow and what would that be able or to not do iPods pardon me yeah airpods yeah. iPods I just dated myself. <laughs> What do you envision that the benefits would be of knowing this information? Um, like, how could someone apply this to their day-to-day -day life if they had this type of information on their, their brain vital signs? Well, I don't have to speculate about that. I see it in the clinic every day. Yeah. Um, it's transformative. Um, what we can do, because it's objective, so it's not error-prone and it's sensitive, is we, we can measure um, where someone is in terms of a benchmark, um, if you are somebody with a brain injury, uh, we can measure your return back right. um, and find out what works. If you're somebody with a neurologic disease like Alzheimer's, um, in our care homes, we can measure the difference between those that have dementia and those that don't. And the goal is to really pair that with um, how they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis so we can properly um, treat them with medications yeah. rather than just sort of right now, it's, it's, a, it's very scary how that, how, uh, the problems we face there. Um, and then in um, mental health, um, we've, we've tracked it with uh, Trevor to show that um, his cognitive functions got better and so did his PTSD, so that's huge. Right. Um, and then um, in just performance optimization, uh, we've employed it with uh, lead athletes and uh, across a number of sports um, and also are excited to bring it into special forces and into space and and uh, executive health and, and that sort of thing. Right. Will this be able to help people uh, who are like just really interested in learning things and, and optimizing their brain for focus and studying and doing stuff like that? Absolutely. Yeah, it's um, the goal is is um, on the front page of Health Tech Connects. The question is, do you know how your brain is doing? Yeah. And the goal is to give you the ability to get the answer to that question. That's awesome. Can you tell us about the building that we're in um, and how you approach things? Because I had the pleasure of coming in and seeing your amazing workspace, um, but I also saw people working out um, right in one of the main areas. And uh, they were like, we take our health seriously. And so it seems like you guys are really good at not only understanding the science, but applying it. So can you tell us about the building that we're in um, and how you guys approach things? Yeah, for sure. We're sitting on the top of City Center 1, which is the first building of the Health and Technology District. The building behind me is City Center 2. The one over there that's just been built, the City Center 3, there are care homes. Um, it was slated to go to eight buildings. It looks like we're going to expand. Um, it's an it's a ecosystem for health technology innovation. And it's pretty simple. The hypothesis is we face some pretty wicked problems in terms of our health care. 
and technology innovation can make more immediate impacts. Yeah. And so let's create a, a, an environment here in BC that um, does that. Yeah. And uh, it's, um, I think we're, we're well on our way to over a million and a half square feet of uh, space where s- sort of clinicians and scientists and businesses come together to solve problems. And, you know, that's what you saw, you know, it's like, just like if you were in Silicon Valley, you know, we've got uh, fitness, we've got yoga for your brain, we've got uh, all sorts of events that go on. It's a super fun place to be. Um, the, um, the, the goal is that we'll be able to really not only make a difference in science. Oh, cool. Hey, buddy. This is why, you, this is yeah. fun to do a podcast outside. Yeah. Um, but also, um, we're, we're kind of driving Canada's economy. And you'd asked me earlier, and I'm a big, I'm, I'm fiercely a, a sort of patriotic around Canada's position in the world around translating brain science and health technology. And so that's a big thing for me. Um, and, you know, when this is, uh, it's well on its way and, and we've estimated its completion of the more than 1.1 billion into our economy every wow. year alone and, um, and employ uh, 15,000 uh, plus uh, high quality and high tech jobs. Wow. And, um, you know, we work closely with universities. So we got incredible students and, um, we have this just ability to, to innovate here. Uh, like, you know, the only place I haven't seen any real place on the planet, but what I I've loved is other places, uh, in Canada, the States and around the globe are following this model. Right. Um, and that's really, um, heartwarming to see. So that actually leads into a question. I'm just interested to know how you see the, the stage for neuroscience around the world. Are we leading the way? Are we number two? Like, how do you kind of envision how we're... Well, historically, percent? Canada would be in the top five, if not top three, um, of top uh, of neuroscience uh, countries on the planet. Right. Um, we have incredible, incredible... Um, uh, legacy in neuroscience. Um, I, I could sit here for another half an hour and tell you all the uh, amazing neuroscientists that um, that are absolute pioneers in this field that are Canadian. Can um, you tell us about a few of them? Just because sure, I think it's uh, important people have respect for um, Wilder the field. Penfield. Yeah. Um, everyone's probably heard about the I smell burnt toast. Wilder Penfield uh, did that in Montreal. The Montreal Neurologic Institute is is world renowned. Um, uh, Jasper uh, Herbert Jasper, who created uh, you know uh, some of the, the the mapping systems we use in EEG. Uh, for sure, probably I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Donald Hebb. Um, almost every computer scientist now, not neuroscientist, but computer scientist knows Donald Hebb because he's the father of um, uh, basically neurons that wire together, fire together. So he's, he, he wrote uh, some seminal work around the concept of neuroplasticity mm-hmm. and um, is, uh, uh, you know, right out of Nova Scotia. So he's, he's really amazing. Um, the, list, the list really truly goes on. Yeah. Um, I'd say if I listed the, you know, historically the top countries, um, certainly Canada's in the mix. Um, uh, the States and Russia are also really big. Of course, Europe has, has come up. Um, but uh, um, I think where Canada's goal and role needs to be, and it's one of my missions, is now in the translational part. Right. Um, so I think that um, there uh, we're in good company. Um, you know, the Israels of the world are incredibly innovative. Um, uh, we see a lot of translational work coming out of uh, a lot of the top centers now. Um, and the shift is focusing, like I said earlier, we're now really focusing from not just studying the problem, but figuring out what we can do about it. 
Right. And I'm hoping you can just describe, I think that people really struggle with self-confidence. I think that that's something I see all the time is people don't seem to feel like they have a role, but we all have a brain and we all have this mechanism inside us that is capable from how you've described it of immense change and ad adaptivity. And so I think that it can be really inspiring to know that we come with hardware built in that is just incredible. So can you tell us just your perspective on the brain? What is it? Um, can you tell us about some of those neural connections and how important it is and how it kind of opens the door for everything else for us? Yeah, okay. Well, how about if I link your self-confidence to your brain potential? Sure. Okay. So um, you mentioned earlier, and I've often thought of this, I got called into when, um, when in Jeopardy, when um, IBM built uh, the computer to beat the, uh, uh, the Jeopardy champions, I got called in as a neuroscientist to debate against computer scientists whether or not computers would ever uh, over, like, be smarter than humans. Um, and I remember doing my research, and I was looking around, and I came across a really interesting thought that stuck with me, which is, um, it seemed absolutely ridiculous at the time uh, that there's um, possibly more uh, uh, sort of neural connections in the human brain than there are atoms in the observable universe. So, of course, like, I had to take a big rabbit hole on that one and go dive into it and see what that, what that was all about. Um, it, roughly, atoms in the observable universe are like uh, 10 to the 70, 10 to the 80. So that's a pretty big number. Yeah. Right? Um, and there can't be that many. Uh, we, we have, you know, the estimates are going between 80 and 100, but let's call it 100 billion neurons in, in the human brain. So um, that's not as, as big a number. It's big. Um, but it turns out that when you think about it in terms of functional connections, which is basically the engine of brain potential, mm -hmm right, um, that that's an infinite number because you can take a, a neural circuit of, let's say, four neurons, and that neural circuit can have more functional connections than the atoms that compose it, which by definition means it's a, it, you know, that you can have more functional connections in your brain right. than you can atoms in the observable universe. Right. And what's really cool about that is when you start to think about it that way, um, you don't even have to do the math to realize the awesome power that's within you that you can unleash. Um, right now, you are rewiring my functional connections, yeah. and I'm rewiring yours. Yeah. Right? So we have this capacity as humans to absolutely do incredibly powerful things. Um, and every individual has that capacity within them. Um, I think the key thing is, can we do them for positive good? Um, because we know of lots of examples where we've done them and it's not been for positive good. And I think that as long as we as a society realized that the outcome of that, everyone loses, um, then um, if we unleash that, then we don't have to be worried, so worried, I think, um, about uh, what's, what's going to happen with our life. We're going to surround ourselves with good people. We're going um, to find those good people and let them take our time and not worry so much about the ones that aren't, aren't a positive good in our life. We're going to try to tap positive neuroplasticity. So rather than feeling like a victim and poor me, we're going to say, okay, I can rewire my brain. So what, you know, let's do it. Let's get, you know, disciplined and structured and work hard for that and stay at it. Um, and then um, I think we're going to set sort of a purpose in life that we want to impact 
And those people, they might, their purpose might be, you know, coming up with, um, you know, why we don't have to rely on um, internal combustion engines in cars anymore. Yeah. Or something else amazing that automatically, drastically um, changes a very scary problem. I think that that's brilliant because I think of our court system and our court system treats every individual like they're sovereign. We treat them as if they could do good. We treat them as if they did commit a crime that they could move forward and not commit any more crimes. We, we have that implicit assumption that we're all created equal and that we all have this intrinsic value and we allow people to vote and we, we create this environment where we really try and maximize the possibility that people could reach their potential as whatever it is. And I think of my circumstances as somebody who felt like certain people were discouraging them, but having that confidence within myself to say, I don't have to fit the mold of other people in my circumstance right. who check a box. I can turn this around. And I think that that is where the science, the law, and the individual all kind of come together where it's like you can reach an insurmountable potential if you put your mind to it. Yeah, you remember we were talking about um, sometimes our, our prefrontal cortexes are too big and they, they complicate things too much. I think your, what you just said in your example demonstrates that at the end of the day, it's as simple as it's up to you, Yeah. right? Um, like you gotta show up and you've gotta, no matter what, uh, what cards you've been dealt, and I, you know, I say this uh, and I've, I've alluded to it, but I got dealt tough cards, but I, didn't, uh, I always chose to see that as an advantage, not a disadvantage. Yeah, can you right. tell us about some of those experiences, just a few, so people, because uh, I think at this point in time, likely listeners are very intimidated by the role you've played in our society and the impact you've had, so it'd be interesting to know some of those challenges you've Yeah, I, you know, I don't like to spend too much time on it because I, I think that we all have the capacity to dwell in, in um, kind of the, you know, the sad stuff that happens and the tough stuff that happens. Um, I, I've, you know, I, I lost my mom to alcoholism when I was seven. Um, I had a lot of really tough, legitimately very hard things happen to me. Yeah. Um, but the reality is, um, I, I get to choose how I respond to that. Yeah. And, and as part of that, I, 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 it's not that I pretend it didn't happen. I just, I just really try to turn it into some positives. So yeah. I'll tell you about it because I want you to know that, um, yeah, um, that happens. Yeah. I want to validate that that's, that is legitimately, a, you know, a horrible thing yeah. that, that happens to people. Yeah. But I also don't want, I, I believe um, all too often I even could be in a place where I want to feel sorry for myself or I want to give up or I don't have confidence. And at the end of the day, I just have to remember like, you know, that's your choice, right? And I can take another choice. Yeah. And, and I, you know, in losing my mom, I figured out uh, that, you know, life is short. And so I always look at, what, when I look back, what am I going to look back on and say, yeah, I'm proud I did it that way. So whenever it's, you know, it's always a tougher path, right, to, to take the route you took or the route I took um, or all we, we all take. But at the end of the day, I'm going to look back and say, I'm glad I took the tougher path. Absolutely. And I think that that is such a strong example for people to be able to say, like, is my problem as bad as this other person? Probably not. So I can go and try harder and put in that work. And yeah. uh, like people learn through the experience of hearing how hard other people's lives are. Like Trevor Green's is an excellent example of his situation was so much harder than the average Canadians. So they can likely go forward and do even better as a average. Consequence everybody on the planet yeah um and and i um every time i want to feel sorry for myself i think about you know 
if Trev could do it, I can do it. Yeah. And I know um, uh, the person, I just read a, a story in the news uh, by Rob Dolson, who is the person who actually um, uh, fired the rifle that killed the 16-year-old before he could take a second blow and kill Trevor. Um, and he struggled through tremendous stuff. And um, he says exactly what I say. Um, if Trevor could do that, I can do this. Right. And so I think when you look for some, you look for inspiration on podcasts like this, or or there, it's all around us, right? Yeah. We, you don't have to look far to find inspiring people and to you know to have positive people in your life. Yeah. You just have to do it. Yeah. I'm also interested to know you. Um, I think another way that you're a role model is that you take this information and you bring it to the front lines. You mentioned that this organization works with UBC and other uh, prestigious universities. Can you tell us about how you went about becoming a professor and sharing that knowledge with young people? Um, everything I've done, I mentioned this earlier, I don't really think too much about titles, yeah. right? Um, so I didn't ever say, oh, I want to be a professor. Never. In fact, I actually sort of get uncomfortable if somebody calls me a professor. Um, uh, but uh, I always, it was always, you know that expression, form follows function? Yeah. Um, I wanted to uh, impact the world through science. And, um, and I loved the brain and neuroscience. And that path... Um, didn't actually take me right to be a professor. I was uh, the head of, uh, of the NRC Institute for Biodiagnostics Atlantic for 10 years, and I had professor titles, um, but it was not until I came back here that I took a job uh, in a real way at the university, at, at Simon Fraser University. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and there, I enjoy the people the most. I love the students. Um, I love uh, the teaching and the ability to just get excited um, it, you know, uh, around um, the number of people that you can have a positive impact and help their careers and be a mentor for them. Um, in, and I take that incredibly seriously. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, yeah, it's, that's the value of that. Um, but to be honest, I, 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 I often, I probably get myself in trouble for this. I often forget I'm a professor. Yeah. Right? I just like, you know, I, I don't go around thinking about anything I am in titles. Yeah. Um, I just, just, I'm just Ryan. Can you tell us more about that? Because I don't disagree with you. And one of my goals with this podcast was to not focus on just the career, just the person and their titles. Um, because I think that that's somewhere our society's gone a little bit too far, where we miss out on the value that other people can play in our communities. And so I'm just interested to know how that philosophy, that I mindset think, came about. Yeah, well, you said it. And I, I think there is a practical value that you need to be aware of. You have to be pragmatic, right? Yeah. And you mentioned that um, there are certain things that allow you to do things. So I got my training and I got my, you know, anything that would get in my way, I, I just got it out of my way. So I wanted to perform at a high level in science and that's a PhD. Um, you know, I wanted to continue to do research in Canada, which um, I do both as a professor in university and I do it as the, the head of my own company. Yeah. Um, one thing that's interesting, people all think that research just happens in, in universities. The bulk of research actually happens by companies. Right. Um, but important research goes on at university and important teaching goes on there. So those were both things I felt were really critical to move, um, to move things forward. And so they became things that I needed to put into my tool belt. Right. Can you tell us about how you bring those two together? Because I think most people would Difficult. be shocked. Right. It's not easy. 
what, so how does that come about? Because I know that most people think that all research, when you hear about research in like news on CTV, you hear like, oh, Harvard did a study on this. So can you tell us about the background of how corporations and how business can get involved in research? Well, I would first say that, again, to my point, corporations and business are probably some of the, the biggest leaders in research. Um, you know, the quickest way to know that's true is ask the thought experiment of where did the vaccine come from? Yeah. It wasn't a university. Yeah. Right? Um, and so uh, it's really important uh, to think about research in a broader scope. But the reality is that um, I think there are roles to play in innovation and um the, you know, the, the businesses have a more direct and obvious role. I think that I, I've had the fortune of being involved in Canada's effort to really bring our, our, our universities and our, and our publicly funded research organizations into the concept of valuing commercialization and business and industry. Okay. Um, and um, that's, um, that's improving. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't, it, it's not necessarily a given. Right? Yeah. You can't just say, dear university, you should think about working with business and industry. Um, universities, people who are at universities are rated on their performance based on the number of publications they create um, and number of students they teach and or train. And, and, and that is a, you know, a fundamental direction that they have, they, that has, um, you can't, you know, if you're paddling the boat that way and then all of a sudden you say, but you've got to do this, and this is about, you know, developing a, a successful company, it's obviously going to take some growth um, yeah. and some time to get there. Yeah. And, and, the, and there are some places in Canada that, have, that are further ahead and there are some places that are just out embarking on that adventure. But the good news is, and this is a little shout out to politicians, by and large, our, our politicians have got it right that we have to start competing in that. Because internationally, um, uh, innovation-wise, Canada's not doing well in, in, and hasn't ever in the what we call the OECD rankings. So, so we would not be winning or even getting to go to the Olympics in innovation in this country. Right. And that has to change, in my opinion. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Because I think that that is uh, really interesting to hear that we aren't leading the way on in innovation, and how do we go about doing that, or how have you been involved in bringing that about? For I Canada? think we're doing it. Um, I think now there are strong pockets throughout the country. Um, I think we're starting to understand effective models. Um, you're sitting on top of one of them right now, yeah. thankfully. Um, but uh, I think the um, it's it's like turning a large boat. Um, you can't you can't think of it as a dinghy, right? It's not going to turn fast. Um, it's 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 going to take time. And I think it's going to come out where there are going to be, we will reward people who want to do that and we won't force those who are better at just being uh, purely academic for being good at what they do too. Yeah. And we'll just get a little more sophisticated in how we implement it. I think that's important because I hear a lot of insults towards universities and perhaps that academic mindset from being disconnected from business. Oh, they go both ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you do translational applied you're, um, in, in the university worlds, you're not as smart. Yeah. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm apparently not that smart because I do translational applied. But I trick them back because 25% uh, of what I do is high hardcore foundational science, head spinningly stuff, stuff. And so I'm always like, yeah, well, there's that part, but there's this part. Yeah. And so you can do both. Yeah. Right. So I think we just got to challenge the way we think and our automatic perspectives and just not in a, not an aggressive, you know, sort of critical and snide way, but just in a, in a fun and positive way of saying, Hey, look, you know, we, 
we all agree that this is, you got into this to help people, yeah. right? You didn't get into medical science research to not try and solve the problem. So if you agree with that, then let's just understand that's the critical role you play that you're specialized and then we'll get better at, you know, building teams that get that out the door. That was one of was one of my questions was, do you find that it's hard for scientists or uh, people who work with patients a lot to see them as people still? Like you said, you still view everybody as a person. Do you think that that's something that the industry struggles with or do you think that that is over? I, no, I don't think the industry struggles with that. I think it's an important thing because people forget in care or otherwise that, um, you know, if you come into my, uh, you know, hospital-based medical imaging uh, unit um, and you're coming in because you, you know, these would be a typical patient example that I can think of off the top of my head. You've just been newly diagnosed with a brain tumor and you're, can, you're contemplating surgery, um, which is brain surgery, which is really scary. You're not really too impressed by the fact that I have a four, a four Tesla or a three Tesla MRI. You don't, you know, for you, it's just an MRI. You're not going to say I got good quality care because I got the latest MRI scan. It's how people treat you that gives you a sense of the quality care. Right. If they had time for you, if they treated you as a human being, um, and if, if you, had a, you, know, you felt you had a truly embracing and caring experience, then, then you're going to feel like you got better care um, because you did. Yeah. But the, the challenge is, and certainly um, you know, my wife Rowena reminds me of this all the time and advocates for this, our healthcare systems, we have to understand that they, you know, all these people got in, particularly today with our first responders and COVID, they came into this business to help people. But the system is so incredibly overloaded that they could never help anywhere near the people in, uh, that are there in the time that is available. So they're in a constant moral crisis of conflict, right? And that's, that's not their fault. It's not, it, there's no fault to be had. It's a problem that we need to solve by innovating our care systems. Right. And, and we are. Um, you know, I, I love when people talk about, you know, there's no private or there shouldn't be private in Canada healthcare. There's been a mix of public and private in Canadian health for a long, long time. And it's helped to improve this problem. The problem is we're still not getting the level of healthcare in this country we need. Yeah. And so we have to keep innovating and we have to keep opening our minds and we have to get out of sort of a fixed framework of, you know, it's, we must protect our public health system. Our public access to healthcare has to maintain. Yeah. But what, when access gets, you know, when, when your, your healthcare workers are so overburdened and so taxed that we're worried about losing nurses and not having enough nurses and, um, you're not good. It doesn't matter if you have a public health care system. You're going to have no access to health care. Yeah. So I think people just, they like to sort of polarize problems, and that's not the solution. The solution is to understand the problem and then find, a, you know, a way to supportively in effect, a, a, you know, some sort of improvement in that. Uh, that is true, and I'm interested to know your thoughts. I think of my friend Jake, and he's... I'm interested to know how the client can be involved because I think of people like um, Debbie and Trevor. Well, there's a shift. Yeah. Um, the shift from kind of uh, medicine the, with a paternalistic where you're patient and I, I'm doctor and, and you, you know, we see each other on the other side of the desk. That's shifting. It's shifting with you know, a lot of younger pre uh, clinicians and practitioners coming through. It was shifting ahead of that. Um, it's shifting with the digitization of our, our healthcare and medical data. Um, whether we like it or not, um, and this goes, 
you know, you should be your best advocate. The people who care for you should be the best advocates. Um, you, the problem now we're seeing is you still can't confuse that with expertise, yeah. right? Like three days of studying Facebook and Google does not make you an expert yeah. in, um, you know, uh, unsafe uh, safety issues around vaccines, yeah. right? Um, so I think the key part that we're struggling with this shift is how to still engage with experts to get that information and then utilize that as your own advocate rather than just say, whatever you say, doctor, I'll listen yeah. to whatever you do. Yeah, I right. think that that's so important because thinking of him and thinking of how well uh, it sounds like Debbie and Trevor came to you, not not as expert, but as honest people who were I able to, to say... Them. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but they, the communication was honest in that they did their best to try and understand kind of what was going on with Trevor and listen when doctors would explain things to them so that they could communicate that back to you. And I think of other doctors who don't let uh, somebody come in with them when they're going to see them. Like I know people who their doctor doesn't let anyone else in the room when they're seeing this one patient. And to me, that limits your ability to have a third party say, hey, I've watched this person. I've watched what they've been struggling with. And this is my individual perspective on how they've been approaching things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they were they were in charge of their own health care. Um, uh, you know, when Debbie was told um, by uh, a, a doctor that, to you know, Trevor would go in a care home. She said, you don't know Trevor. Yeah. Um, they took matters into their own hand, and that's very empowering and important. But they did it in an educated way where they relied on experts. Yeah. And I was just one of the many. Um, there were incredible experts that have helped them out along the way. Um, and uh, and uh, they, just, they just found the people they needed to help them continue along rather than feeling like they were a passive um, participant on a journey that they were not in control of. Yeah, and then I think of the fact that they approached that all honestly, and then they connected with you, and uh, you saw you sought them out because right. they were approaching things honestly. Yeah, yeah. I really appreciate you being willing to take the time and share such an important story, and really show how one person can make a difference. Because I think through all of the projects you've been involved in, you've always approached it honestly and really brought about significant change and made improvements in the field and put Canada on the world stage in a meaningful way. And so to have this opportunity. It was just an absolute pleasure. Oh, it's great, Aaron. I love your story. I think um, the, the mission of this podcast is, is just so important and so cool um, that, uh, you know, I, I think um, to the degree that, uh, that, you know, number one, it's a privilege to just sit up here and chat with you, uh, but also that, that any of what we talked about is, is helpful or inspirational to people. I, I think that'd be amazing. I will, I will hopefully have positively impacted their functional connections in some way. Yeah, I'm absolutely sure you have. Thank you again, Ryan. Awesome.